Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. Now on the show this week, we want to talk about tipping points. And in environmental science, these are things like the point where the loss of the Amazon rainforest becomes irreversible. Another one is the melting of the West Antarctic ice shelf. And these are physical processes where one state changes into another. But tipping points can be social too. So to talk about this, I'm joined by our environment reporter, Madeleine Cuff, and by climate scientist Tim Lenton of the University of Exeter. Welcome both. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Hi, Rowan. Thanks for having me on the show, folks. Um, Maddie, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess our conversation today is cheerier than the usual conversations around tipping points. We get to talk about how to inspire positive change rather than the really scary stuff that might be coming down the track. And it was sparked by a research paper that Tim and some colleagues published last week that basically suggested that governments could trigger a mass public shift to plant-based diets simply by serving more vegan burgers and vegan sausages in schools and hospitals. So, Tim, you were one of the co-authors on the paper. Do you want to outline the basic idea behind this plant-based tipping point? Well, all tipping points involve some kind of reinforcing feedback processes and if it's a desirable tipping point we want to trigger we want to try to get those reinforcing feedbacks in motion and they can be things like the more we make something the better we get at making it and the more we make it the cheaper the next unit gets to make and in the case of like alternative proteins the first of which are plant-based meat substitutes and then um, micro proteins we need to create some markets uh, to improve the product somewhat and certainly it will help bring it down in price. So we're suggesting that by public procurement, uh, particularly in the health sector and in education, that's a significant market for food in the UK, one where health goals and environmental goals are very well aligned, switching away from too much red meat eating, which is bad for your health as well as bad for the climate. And yeah, in that learning space, if you like, that will help make alternative proteins better, potentially cheaper, although some of them are already cost competitive, and hopefully triggers what we call social contagion, where people realise, oh, actually, this stuff's quite nice, and I can't really notice the difference from what I was eating. So break down some of those social barriers that we tend to have around changing our food habits. And how much do we need sort of government support for this sort of thing? And how much is a is just kind of organically a a social change element? Well, in the report, we actually look at two other proposals for what we call super leverage points that governments could use to try and trigger tipping point change across different sectors, not just within sectors. So there's clearly, we think, an important role for good governance if if it's available. And we see that in another sector, for example, with mandates for zero emission vehicles saying that there are not going to be any more petrol or diesel cars sold after this date, currently 2030 in the UK. 
that sets a very strong signal to the um, industrial sector, the manufacturers, and is, and also to those who would install electric charging networks and so on and so forth. And that really helps move this thing along. But at the same time, sometimes change happens from the bottom up, from us, the citizens. And in the case of food and diets, you could argue there's far more action coming from the bottom up of either social innovation, like social influencers, athletes who are adopting vegan diets and causing other exercise types like me to follow them. Or um, also in the case of bottom up change, a lot of innovation happening out of research and development and in this case for plant-based foods in the development of these alternatives. So the best chances of the positive tipping points will be a sort of holy alliance between the bottom up and the top down, but it can be a varying mix depending on the, the sector, I think. And for with food and diet, the if we took the example of the current UK government, they won't touch, you know, that with a barge pole, I think, sadly. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about this because, I mean, I'm speaking as a vegetarian, so probably not the target market for someone who might be angry about such a change. But it didn't seem to me like this would be that radical a step. I mean, some universities, Cambridge springs to mind and, and Goldsmiths University, they've already cut beef from their menus. Lots of places are, are taking out red meat and replacing it with kind of plant-based alternatives. So how politically controversial do you think this might be? I mean, would farmers have a problem with it? Would ministers have a problem with enacting it? How yeah, how edgy do you think this, this idea might be, Tim? Well, clearly some people... Uh, get very upset about any kind of talk about reducing meat consumption and among those are perhaps understandably livestock farmers but also we have a particular brand of politics or politicians who seem to think that choice is sort of sacrosanct and that they don't dare even begin to suggest uh, something that might influence or limit openly the choices of consumers And yet, as we've just been discussing, many of us consumers are quite happy to experiment and try to, you know, try different things. And in the case of the health sector, as a blindingly obvious example, it's well known that excessive, particularly red meat consumption, is correlated with cardiovascular disease, colorectal cancer, type 2 diabetes, probably a bunch of things, statistically significantly. So it's kind of crazy that the government should be already anyway, probably effectively sponsoring food consumption in the health service that's actually bad for health. So so unsurprisingly, it shouldn't be too controversial to doctors or to health practitioners. And it probably shouldn't be too controversial to the health aware who found themselves in hospital. Well, well, like the government are compensating farmers at the moment for, they're subsidising them, aren't they, for producing unviably expensive meat on their land. So would there be a way of, you know, we, we need to bring farmers along with us. Um, you know, can we compensate them for their land in a different way by giving them carbon credits or, you know, paying them to rewild their, the land that's no longer going to be raised, you know, have sheep on it? Precisely. Ryan. My brother-in-law's a farmer and this is exactly the conversation we're always having because... <laughs> is it angry around the dinner table? No, at Christmas? it's very... Um, it's the farmer's... Good farmers are always used to innovating and they have to because hmm. they're living pretty on the edge usually and, you know, they'll take market opportunities as they open up and 
you've nailed it. You know, we're in a time post-Brexit, post-common agricultural policy of reform of uh, farm payments and all these incentive schemes. And that's a huge opportunity to actually create a better financial situation for farmers because there's an awful lot of uncertainty when you're in the volatile market price space um, for either crops or sometimes livestock. Whereas if you have a guaranteed payment for something like rewilding or whatever to provide ecosystem services, most people faced with those monetary choices um, will take, you know, attractive options which have certainty associated with them and farmers are no different. So Mm. I think there, of course, are cultural issues. If you've always been a dairy farmer and you've really been suffering in recent decade or decades, you still have an attachment to your cows and to a way of living that you've grown up with. So there's always going to be some kind of some wrench, some some human wrench, no doubt, to changing habits. But also, you know, there's a real opportunity here to potentially provide better well-being for farmers in this case. Yeah. You mentioned um, that the paper has three super leverage points, I think is what you, mm. you called them. What are the what are the other two aside from vegan food? Well, one that's maybe familiar, which is because this is a global report, it is um, zero emissions vehicle mandates like we have in the UK, like California has sort of had and not had and had again. <laughs> um, but but it's very clear that those provide a strong incentive and trigger to accelerate the transition to electrifying um, mobility. And the other one that we highlight is in the what would be called the kind of green hydrogen sector. It's that we argue that a mandate for a certain amount of what we'd call green ammonia, so for fertilizer, would help trigger economies of scale that would bring down the price of what's called green hydrogen. So to elaborate a bit there, you can make hydrogen with electricity, renewable electricity, by splitting water molecules. If you want to turn that into ammonia for fertilizer for crops, you've got to combine it with nitrogen that you separate from the air, which you can also use renewable electricity to do, and you can make a combined plant for that. There aren't so many plants doing that in the world yet, so we need some, again, some incentives to kickstart that market. But the bigger concept here is we're not just trying to identify leverage points that will tip one sector. We're trying to identify ones that are super leverage points because they'll encourage tipping in other sectors. So in the case of the vehicles one, what you're really doing is creating uh, reinforcing feedback of economies of scale that bring down the price of batteries in simple terms. That's making electric cars cheaper, but it's just providing cheap batteries in general. Well, that's really good uh, for switching to renewable electricity, because in a 100% renewable grid, you need cheap forms of storage and batteries are one viable option. Also, those cheap batteries can go off and help reduce the price and help trigger the transition to electrifying light goods transport. So there are these cascades to other sectors. And with the hydrogen one, we reckon from the figures that we have that ammonia, green ammonia production for fertilizer is a cost competitive viable market already with the high gas price in, for making you know these fertilizers through what's called the Harbour-Bosch process conventionally. But then by getting economies of scale that bring down the price of green ammonia, you'll open up a market for green ammonia for shipping instead of what they're currently still running ships on like bunker fuel a lot of the yeah. time. And then that's another market, a bigger one actually, 
that will bring down the price of hydrogen even further. And then by our calculations, that could open up the market for using hydrogen to directly reduce iron in steel manufacture. So green steel, basically. So again, cascading across sectors. And with our diets one, the crucial interaction is the really non-linear change. If you can do anything to reduce like red meat consumption, you can radically liberate land upon which to do exactly what Rowan and I did, which is nature-based climate solutions or rewilding or whatever you want to call it to draw down, make the land a sink of greenhouse gases rather than a net source. It's like knocking down a chain of green dominoes that you set one going and yeah, yeah. the whole line starts falling. Yeah, I'm used to upsetting people with the with the science of how there can be those rather unfortunate tipping point, bad tipping point cascades in the climate system. But yeah, in this case, we need to welcome the, the toppling of the domino cascade. And how's it been received, Tim, the report? Um, surprise, well, maybe not surprisingly well. I was about to say surprisingly well. I've got a lot of interest from the media and a lot of good feedback in my inbox and so of my lead and co-authors. I think this is because we're living in this time where people are increasingly talking about we're in a poly crisis, you know, there are these couple crises going on. Basically, we're confronted by a world that is manifestly complex and is recoiling and doing things we weren't expecting in alarming ways. And we're all trying to work out, oh, how should we act and behave in the face of that? And um, sometimes one could argue our, our leaders and decision makers just get paralysed by complexity, whereas my message is you should be empowered by complexity. And once you understand it and know how to work with it, it actually opens up windows for opportunity, the fact that the world is nonlinear, and that includes the social and economic world we're talking about here. And we need it to be nonlinear because we're going way too slowly to decarbonize the economy, about five times too slowly still globally. But tipping points, the whole point is they're self-accelerating change. So they're our best hope for a speed up. And I think I think if I explain it in simple enough terms, people kind of get that and that's empowering because otherwise we're left staring down the abyss of the climate ecological crisis thinking we're never going to get out of this. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I was I was really interested to see that your work, the report was supported by the Bezos Earth Fund. That's the $10 billion fund set up by Jeff Bezos. It is, yeah. And now... I was really interested in that because I wrote a book about basically chucking money at world problems and trying to change the world Mm -hmm. with money. And I wondered how important it is to, you know, to promote these leveraging tipping points uh, using money, you know, to promote positive tipping points. And I wonder if, as I think you're getting at really, that, you know, this is the way that we can, or we have to accelerate change. And I wonder if that's something that the Earth Fund is thinking more more about these days? Well, well, I'm really hoping to help influence the Earth Fund's thinking because they've got a lot of money to spend. But like every 
trust or foundation, they want to spend it as effectively as they can. And they've stated, you know, on the tin that they want to use that money to leverage positive transformative change. So they need some, or they want some clues how to best deploy it. And we're hoping that this work and also some research they're funding along with it, which is to look for what I call uh, now early opportunity indicators to create positive tipping points, whether that can help inform their support and their funding more broadly. So yeah, absolutely. If you live in a capitalist uh, world and economy, then unsurprisingly, I think moving capital is perhaps one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful (laughs) agent of change. And even if some of us might have strong reservations about the current uh, so-called neoliberal flavour of capitalism. We've got to work from within the systems we find ourselves in to create change in the direction we desire to go. It's like a hopeless cause if you really try to adopt this position. We've got to completely bin <laughs> throw out what we have and start afresh. That, I'm afraid, um, just doesn't seem um, a workable strategy. But I concede at the same time that at some point the green growth becomes what we call an oxymoron as academics. It's an internal contradiction. And the way I would uh, justify the argument we're making is we do have some real empirical evidence that you can decouple greenhouse gas emissions from economic growth, even though there's no empirical evidence yet that you can decouple like the overall consumption of stuff from growth. But for now, we've got to as a priority, shut down those greenhouse gas emissions. So why not work with the growth engine temporarily that we have to try and do that? And then I concede that we also still then have to solve the problem of rethinking our economics and shifting to more material cycling economy powered by renewable energy. And I've written about that extensively. I'm just a pragmatist in terms of uh, how we set off in that direction. One One, mega problem at a time. Yeah, 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 right. Because even I might get paralysed by the complexity of trying to tackle everything at once without creating an enormous kind of catastrophe as we try to change everything simultaneously. Because we're really quick to do that. We're not collectively smart enough, alas, yet Mm. to do that. Tim, it's been nice talking about uh, positive tipping points, but I think we do have to mention the negative ones. Um, What's the latest on that? Well, um, we published a paper in Science back in September, um, led by David Armstrong McKay, now my group, on, you know, a synthesis of the 230 studies we could find about climate tipping points and how close they are. And the, um, the sobering message from that was really that we could be well we look to be in the danger zone already for or the risk zone for five of those major climate tipping points greenland and west antarctic ice sheets something that's been little studied but is important which involves uh, deep convection it's called in the labrador sea uh, which we can come back to if you like the abrupt thawing of permafrost was on the list as well and so on And at one and a half degrees centigrade, we assessed that four of those might become likely as well as other things coming into the mix. So I think if we're anything close to right in that synthesis, it means that we're going to have to do some preparation for further tumultuous changes in the climate system. But we still have a huge 
opportunity to limit the amount and the extent of those tipping points, those bad tipping points. So there's still everything to play for, and every 0.1 degree C of global warming really counts for these non-linear risks. But practically, we also need to do some work on thinking about uh, what are our adaptation options. And that, that esoteric thing I mentioned, if the sinking of, of water from the surface of the Labrador Sea to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean were to switch off, and models say that could happen at near the present level of global warming and unfold in a decade, well, that, that creates a transition like the transition to the Little Ice Age was in Europe, but it happens on top of global warming. So what you get is a more, much more seasonal climate here. We'd have much more severe winter snowstorms, colder, harsher winters, yet we'd probably still probably have more intense heat wave summers and uh, our infrastructure, we're just not equipped for that. So mm. those sort of things need policymakers to like switch on and we need to do some proper work assessing those risks and, and possibly um, having some preparation strategies just in case the worst happens. How well do you think governments are engaging with this issue? I mean, it seems to me like like maybe we should be calling a COBRA meeting to discuss our response to this. Um, I was chatting to a, a trusted friend and colleague who'd been around the various departments because that colleague is at Chatham House talking to senior civil servants and senior scientists and this and that, and basically came back to me last Friday and said none of them had heard of this particular tipping point or had any inkling of what it was. So I I take that upon myself that um, I'm maybe not doing as good a job as I should be popularising this stuff, but I try my best. Uh, But yeah, what I would generally say is that some of the meta-organisations like OECD, interestingly, have been really good recently at coming to me and to other scientific teams wanting this science, wanting more of it, wanting to package it into their reports that hopefully influence policy and decision making. But of course, you could argue maybe this stuff is still getting lost, you know, amidst a lot of other information in what's usually a big report and who knows who reads them kind of thing. So, um, Thomas Stocker, of, uh, former chair of the Working Group 1 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has been pushing hard for an IPCC special report on tipping points, and I support that call. But I also think you don't want to close the stable door after the horse has bolted. So in the interest of doing something in the shorter term, with the same support that we had for the report we just published last week, we are preparing a state of tipping points report for ready for COP28 at the end of this year. And that will cover both the bad climate tipping points and the and the positive tipping points in the economy. And also the kind of messy stuff in the middle of where tipping happens across climate, ecological, social systems. And sometimes it's good, but sometimes it could be bad. And that's, that's a really, uh, I was gonna say, f- fun exercise at the level of it's building a community of, of interested researchers to really want to get the message out there on that. Of course, yet another report, yet another report among 100 reports at COP28 does risk being ignored, but let, we'll do our best to um, to make it a good one. And we'll continue to support those wider efforts to getting more kind of coverage through like, the official channels like IPCC. Tim, 
you're known as the tipping point guy in the New Scientist newsroom. <laughs> I just yeah. wondered, uh, you know, after doing this for, you know, your whole career, where where are you at personally in terms of your, your hope? Are you on a, you know, good side of the tipping point in terms of that we're, we're finally getting somewhere? Well, I'm a born optimist, Rowan, like my hero Jim Lovelock was. So I, I still think we've got some agency to do something about this critical situation and it is through the positive tipping points that we'll, we could really get a hold back on the situation but it's through the negative or the bad tipping points that lurk our biggest risks so for me yeah I haven't certainly haven't given up hope but uh, some mornings are harder than others to get out of bed mm. kind of thing and I just try to put my energy into researching this stuff and communicating it and i've started writing a what will hopefully be a popular popular book on the topic on the bad and the good tipping points so that's where i'm at i think mm. but what else can you do as a as a scientist and a thinker other than like try to advance the thinking and and somehow share it but at the bottom line it's also an education thing. It's like we didn't grow up trained to think in complex systems. So I also understand that for me, part of my passion and my role is to go out and educate either my own students or anybody else who's asking about this way of thinking. While we have you, Tim, it's the first time I've spoken to you since James Lovelock died. And I wanted to ask you about his legacy. Um, perhaps you can say a few words about him. Well, what a time to be talking about Jim Lovelock because 50 years ahead of his time, I think he gave us the kind of worldview and the toolkit we need to think about and work out how to act and interact in a situation of kind of complex system crisis. And it's that complex living kind of system, Gaia, that, that is convulsing in some various forms, partly with the extraordinary climate extremes off the statistical scale and with um, some really bad signs of ecological breakdown in particular key ecosystems. At the same time as we create these kind of convulsive changes in the social and uh, systems or, or rogue uh, quasi-dictators in Russia or whatever create war in Europe, um, etc, etc. So Jim... Yeah, I think Jim leaves us a very important legacy, which is a, a way of understanding and then being empowered to act in the face of the kind of uh, convulsing complexity we've all been living through with the pandemic and the rest of it. So yeah, I'm here to uh, try and carry on the legacy of his work. And I, it still depresses me how under-recognised it is and how how many academics in particular are still sort of murmuring and mumbling about, oh, the Gaia hypothesis, it's kind of controversial, that's all flaky stuff, we'll just ignore it. Mm. They're, they're like throwing away the elephant, um, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I that that is what it is. But I think anyone who's as extraordinary as Lovelock and fundamentally challenges the conventional paradigms of thinking is bound to have generated a strong reaction from the establishment. But as scientists, you know, you have to, like, be empiricists. And when the world starts behaving in a particular way that your existing paradigm is ill-coped to deal with, either even understanding what's going on or working out how to act appropriately, then maybe that's when it starts to force a bit of that worldview or paradigm change. 
Well, that's my uh, optimistic hope. We'll see. Mm. (laughs) That was Tim Lenton, who's director of the Global Systems Institute and chair in climate change and earth system science at the University of Exeter. And thanks too to Madeleine Cuff, and I'll put a link to her story on the Tipping Point report in the show notes. We've written loads about tipping points, and I'll put links to those in the notes too, in case you'd like to find out more. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. Do subscribe to our show, and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.